0: When we launched the campus, it um, wasn't long into it before I found out that we had three, three former pastors as a part of our congregation. And I thought to myself, good grief. Um, and, and this one, Dwight, happens to be the most intimidating to me. When I learned about his experience and his um, training and all of that, I was like, oh my goodness. But the truth is, over the last two years, Dwight has been nothing but humble and kind and generous and helpful. Uh, and he's been an encouragement to me personally and a big help to our church. And this morning, we have the privilege of sitting under Dwight, opening the word together with us. So I want to pray over him, and he's going to come, and we'll uh, we'll we'll jump into the Bible together, but let's pray. God, I thank you so much for Dwight. I thank you for his love for you and for his love for the local church. And I'm so thankful, God, that you have brought him and his family here and that they're a part of our, our faith family, God. And right now as he comes to open the word, would you anoint him with your presence? And would he have that experience that's been described as a conscious awareness of your smile? That even as he's preaching, that that you are so near to him and so real to him, that he by your spirit uh, senses uh, your pleasure, uh, your your love for him, your calling of him to minister to us. And God, we pray that all of us would would um, gladly receive the word, that we would have open ears and open hearts, and that you would help us, God, to reflect on um, the fact that you are a good father and that you call us to be. Good parents and to be a community of faith where people can be safe and welcomed and all of that because of Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Join me in welcoming Dwight.
1: Good morning. Are, are we always this lopsided? <laughs> uh. Uh, I'm honored that uh, Corey trusts me enough to share some word with you a little bit this morning and pleased to give him a little bit of a break. Uh, Today's message is going to be different for a couple of reasons. One, I'm obviously not Corey, and uh, it's going to be different because I do things differently, but it's also going to be different because it's Father's Day. And so. uh, if today doesn't work for you, uh, I'll apologize right now and uh, just ask you to come back next week and uh, Cory will be pre- teaching again and he'll make things all right. So uh, let, let's show Cory some appreciation. <clears throat> I want to let you in on a secret and that is that uh, holidays like Father's Day are a special challenge for preachers. Uh, For one thing, the the last parts of the Bible were written or finished almost 2,000 years before the secular holiday of Father's Day was created, and so there is no designated text uh, that we're supposed to use on Father's Day. Uh, But more than that, uh, everybody in here has a different experience with fathers, and uh, some want to come in here this morning and do nothing but celebrate that. Uh, some's fathers are gone and they they want to remember a saint. Uh, some were treated badly uh, and are still hurt and angry and wounded about that. Uh, some didn't know a father and, and uh, they're still in pain over that. So, all those things can't possibly be addressed appropriately in just a few minutes, and, and so that makes it hard for us. But the thing that really makes it the hardest is that it's uh, really easy for preachers to come out like they've got it all figured out. Uh, and, and the truth is, uh, we're just muddling through this and trying not to make a mess, just like you are. Uh, and so uh, don't hear me talking about it like uh, I've got fatherhood all figured out, uh, but as a fellow traveler who's struggling. Uh, with trying to do a decent job of it. So let's pray together before we get started. Uh, Lord, our intention this morning is to meditate on fathers, but we don't want to uh, corral your work here that way. So we give you the freedom to do whatever you need to do, whether it's to bring about joy and thanksgiving and celebration or uh, forgiveness and apology, uh, dedication, repentance. Uh, we give it all to you today, Lord, and uh, let you work as you will. Uh, I pray that the things I say will be true and clear in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is Father's Day, and so let's begin with uh, hearing a, a word from a famous father. Enough, enough already. Look, I'm leaving, all right? For the last time, I'm not taking the money. I lost it. That's all. I'm a big boy. All right, if I take the money, what kind of message is that sent to, to my kids? That no matter what happens, you can just go to your father and he'll, he'll make everything okay? You're right. You're right. What? What? What am I right about?
0: He should be able to go to your father, and he should be able to make it okay. Here, be a good father, big head. (laughs) Thanks, thanks,
1: Doug. Be a good father. Make it okay. Well, that's about all there is to say this morning, isn't it? Uh, Unfortunately, it's not that easy, is it? Uh, Our experience is quite different from that. Uh, We know that family life is complicated, and sometimes it's pretty ugly. And and nowhere is the Bible more honest than when it comes to talking about matters of family. The, The biblical story includes things like multiple intermarriages, concubines, family strife, assault, and murderous sibling rivalry, and it happens again and again and again as you go through it. And let's be clear, just because some of that's in the Bible does not mean that's God's plan. That's not God's intent for fatherhood. But the Bible is honest about that, and the same thing is happening around us today. Any news story, any news section we hear is going to have something like that about fathers and families, and it's painful to hear. It's even more painful to be be part of, and That's something I promise you that there are men and women in here today, not to mention your neighbors and uh, colleagues and people you work with who have come out of complicated, ugly family life. Some were abused or abandoned. Others were neglected or ignored. Many have been ridiculed and shamed. The wounds are deep and they tend to get carried from one generation to the next. And sadly, the church doesn't often speak to that uh, hurt and pain. And even worse, sometimes it's part of it and has contributed to it. See, Father's Day is not easy for survivors, uh, and church is not easy for them. Survivors need love and safety, uh, not judgment and whispers. And it's our hope that while biological fathers may have failed them that Uh, stepfathers and grandfathers and other surrogate fathers have stepped up to make things okay for them. I know that doesn't always happen, but that's certainly our hope. It's not a pleasant reality. Uh, I saw a poll just this last week as we're leading into Father's Day that reported over 50 percent of fathers uh, say that they have been criticized for their parenting skills. Uh, That may be low, I'm not sure. And while some of the criticism may be justified, I'm persuaded that most fathers, just like most mothers, really want to do a good job. Uh, it's not something that most of us choose to do badly, but too often we don't know how to make things okay or, or even what that is sometimes. And as Christians, we've got to wonder, is there some something in Scripture that can speak positively uh, about God's intent for fatherhood. Well, I want to do kind of a little Bible study this morning, move through th- three things quickly. W- one is uh, uh, the goals that, that should be before fathers, and the second is the means that fathers should use. And then we're going to close uh, talking about the good father, the loving father. So so let's begin with Luke 2:51 through 52. Uh, just a couple of short verses there. <clears throat> then he, that is Jesus, Uh, went down to Nazareth with them, and that is Joseph and Mary, and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now you may recognize the verses here as the conclusion of the story when Joseph and Mary and Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus is 12 or 13 years old somewhere in there. And as they come to the conclusion of Passover and get ready to go home, and they're traveling as family, almost likely, uh, Jesus gets separated from the family group, and there's a panic to find Jesus. Uh, And so finally, after them uh, searching desperately through Jerusalem for Jesus, in fact, having to go back to Jerusalem and search through, they find Jesus in the temple, uh, having some deep discussions with the biblical scholars there. Now, I know it's not part of the story, uh, but I think hidden in this little verse is, is a good goal for parents to keep in mind, especially for fathers. It's, while, while neither Joseph nor Mary are specifically named as responsible, uh, we know from other places in here that they are worthy, righteous be, uh, persons, and I don't think it's uh, wrong to presume that they had a positive effect uh, on Jesus as he was growing up as a boy. Uh, After all, he did turn out okay, by all accounts. And so, we're told here that Jesus grew, he progressed, he matured in four different ways. And and I think those four dimensions provide a a good outline, a a good direction, a goal uh, for parenting in general. And the first of these, the first dimension is the, the dimension of maturity in wisdom. Now, Intellectual growth is something we all hope for in our kids. We want them to be smart. Uh, We want them to be able to do algebra. We want them to remember things from history. We want them to know the science things. We like them to be able to write complete sentences, all those kinds of things. But there's more to this intellectual development than than that, than than those kinds of things. I think in particular, for our perspective, we need to pay attention to the fact that it includes, that wisdom includes a sense of justice, of right and wrong of being able to make moral decisions, of being able to analyze a situation and stack it up against God's expectations and to choose the right thing to do. Now that's not easy to do, most of us as adults struggle with it. We deal with gray areas day in and day out and it's hard to work through that and it's hard for children to develop it. We know from developmental studies that this ability to make that discernment about right and wrong and moral decisions and justice is the very last thing that develops in human beings and some seem never to develop it. We've run across people like that. We've, run, we've worked with people like that. But this persists into young adulthood, learning how to make those kinds of decisions. And I think it requires patience and persistence on the part of the parents to make that happen. It requires a good model, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. The second dimension of maturity that, that's mentioned is, in this verse is the maturity of body, of stature. Now, that's the easy one. We all pay attention to that. We want our kids to grow up healthy and strong and all that good stuff and learn how to do all those dangerous sports like I did when I was a kid and, and all those things that your parents don't want to know about. You know, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah we want them to be strong and healthy. So, so that's there. But it is second to the other one, which is interesting. But then the third and fourth, I think, are the real killers in here. And, th- and that is the relational developments. Or, or re- the, f- the first one is the relationships with others. Now, relationships with other people run a wide range of things. We've got those civil, public interactions of folks that we may not ever know, but we just run across every now and then. And then there's that circle that we work with and the circle of close friends. But then there are those intimate family relationships, especially between a husband and a wife. And so you've got all that going on in relationships. It's complicated stuff. And that's one of the reasons that family life is so complicated. But children need to learn how to do that. You don't grow up with that automatically programmed us that pops out later on, well, I'm 19 now, I guess I know how to do relationships. It doesn't happen that way. We all know that. And yet we live in a world right now that seems like it's lost all kinds of handles on relationships. Civility seems to have gone out the window a few years ago, and bullying is rampant. We hear about it all the time. There's vulgar and destructive behavior happening all over the place. And our growing culture of of isolation and self-centeredness is really complicated by cyberspace where relationships become mechanical and one-sided and anonymous and interchangeable, come and go. There's nothing sustained in there it 's a tough time for relationships with others, and our children need to learn how to do that, but even more importantly is that fourth dimension, and that is the dimension of relationship with God, and this matches that horizontal relationship, the horizontal direction, with a vertical direction, and that 's what rounds out us as, rounds us out as human beings is having both of those dimensions in relationships. Yeah, you know, I'm persuaded, as many others are, that there's something in the human beings that we are inclined to find connections with something outside this physical universe. It's inherent in us, I believe. Uh, when scripture talks about having eternity in our hearts, I believe that's, what that's what's meant there, that there's something within us that drives us to connect outside. And, and we try in all kinds of ways to fill it with stuff. But the truth is, God's the only one who can really fill that hole up in us. As St. Augustine said centuries ago, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That's really the, only, the, the, the ultimate relationship for us. And it's still interconnected with the relationships that we have with others. You can't separate Relationships with others and relationships with God. If we're going to have relationships with others, they can never be complete until we've got a relationship with God. And if we've got a relationship with God, God's going to drive us to relationships with others. Uh, and, and so it's a, it's a package deal. And, and both of them need to be worked on all the time. You know, children learn about good relationships not only by being told, but by seeing and experiencing the example of fathers who are civil and gracious and caring and fair and kind. They learn about practices of gratitude and generosity, and the really hard ones for us as men, apology and forgiveness. They learn that by seeing it in action. They learn it by experiencing it from their own fathers. They see authentic affection in action, and they see how a life of faith matters in the ways that we deal with others. Now, that's a challenge not only for parents, but it's a challenge for all of us as adults because we need to be modeling and reinforcing for children, even if they're not ours about what it means to be a person who understands relationships with God and relationships with others now research shows us that the ways that children experience faith in family life is the major determinant on whether or not faith plays a role personal faith for them plays a role later on in life no it's not a guarantee it, it, there's nothing certain about that, but it's the primary driver about whether or not a child can have a, develops a personal faith later on in life, and that seeing an authentic faith happening as they're growing up, seeing that it makes a difference in their lives. You know, Harry Chaffin's old song, "Cats in the Cradle," is true in more ways than we want to think about, and gets scary if you think about it very long. After service in World War II, Henry Kirshner went to University of Illinois and got a degree in business and eventually ended up being the owner and CEO of a modest private bank in Springfield. Uh, And there he was a generous, uh, regular participant in his church, uh, involved in all kinds of community affairs. Uh, education, humanitarian things, the theater, served on all kinds of boards that were involved in those good things that are going on in the community, and served on the board for the Great Rivers Region, which I was privileged to serve as the executive minister uh, years ago, and that's where I met Henry. Uh, Henry was our uh, treasurer for almost 10 years, and and I knew him personally as a kind and generous low-key guy that did more good things in his community and church that people didn't know about. When he died, I was privileged to have a part in his funeral, and as we gathered in the church, the church was packed with power-heading business leaders and government leaders from across Springfield who had worked and known Henry over the years that he had been in Springfield. And as we got to the end of the service, the grandchildren came to do uh, a tribute to their grandfather. And while the 12-year-old granddaughter spoke, the other grandchildren passed out shiny, brand-new Lincoln pennies uh, as thing, as tokens to remember their grandfather banker by. And uh, the 12-year-old granddaughter did the things you might expect in remembering her grandfather, mostly personal and, and mostly, you know, the things you kind of expect, but nothing extraordinary. But then she got to the very end, and Remember, this place is packed with business tycoons and uh, government leaders from across Springfield. She closes her tribute by saying, my grandfather loved banking, not because he loved money, but because he loved helping people. She did not learn that from a book, and she didn't learn it in a lecture. In her 12 short years, she had seen that a grandfather for whom faith made a difference in their life, who was generous and kind with others all the time, and she learned that from him. At 12, she was well on her way to being a four-dimensional person like we talk about from the book of Luke here. I didn't know her father and mother well. I just knew them casually. But I know Henry, and I know what kind of guy Henry was. She, I for sure was getting it from him if she wasn't for her fa- from her father. You know, that goal of a four-dimensional person in Christ is something that ought to stick with us as parents. But how do you get there? Okay, you've got the looking thing that's going on, like the, the granddaughter here but there's more to it as well, I think. Uh, let's take a look at Ephesians. And, and this, this letter is deep and rich. In the first half of it, Paul is talking about uh, some doctrinal things that are just so rich and so powerful that, it, that it's really hard to, to get a handle on sometimes. But he doesn't just stop there. When About halfway through the letter, he, stop, he pauses for a prayer, and gives thanks for the grace of God and the wonderful things that have been given to us in Jesus Christ, then prays a prayer of intercession for the saints at uh, Ephesus, and then goes on to make a transition to talk about the practical consequences of all this doctrinal stuff that he's done in the first three chapters. And there's always a connection between, there should be a connection between doctrine and practical consequences. They stand together. And so this is the flow that we find in in that uh, letter as Paul is making the transition from some pretty hefty doctrine to some practical consequences. In 4.1, he tells him, live a life worthy of, of the calling that you have received and it's in view of all this stuff that God has done that I'm talked about in three chapters you're supposed to live differently you're supposed to live differently to make it to drive it home he comes in verse 17 and says no longer live as the Gentiles do now here Gentiles is not an ethnic group he means non-believers don't live like non-believers but in 5.1 be imitators of God and then the conclusion of that transition in 521 submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Now that's the governing idea that makes the transition from this deep doctrine to some very practical consequences. And you can compress that into a single sentence if you wanted to. You say, in view of what God has done in Jesus Christ, live a life worthy of the calling you have received, no longer living as the Gentiles do, but be imitators of God, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. Bang! Right in in a nutshell. That's it. That's really the whole thing going on here. That's the governing idea. And so after that then, Paul talks about uh, uh, all kinds of relationships and what is typically called the quote household code. And in the midst of that there's one verse about fathers. In four, Paul says, fathers do not exasperate your children. Instead bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. No matter how exasperating your children are, don't exasperate them. Why fathers and not mothers? Do do mothers have permission to exasperate their children? (laughs) Well, this is one of those places where you really need to know the the context, the world that that, that Paul is writing to. In, In the Roman world at that time, fathers literally held the power of life and death over their children. Children had no protections legally or socially. And Paul is saying directly to, parents, to, to fathers, "Fathers are a problem. Fathers are a problem. Roman f- fathers should not live like Roman fathers. This is a specific place where you need to live differently. Christian fatherhood is different than unbeliever fatherhood. Christians behave differently. Our parenting has different goals. Our parenting has different means because we've been called to a different life in Jesus Christ. That's, that's it in a nutshell. Different goals, different means because we've got a different life. In particular, not only, in particular, we're not supposed to exasperate our children, not supposed to anger or push their buttons Yes, we want our children to grow up fully four-dimensional like we talked about just a minute ago. And no, we can't give them everything they want. But the means that we use to reach that goal matter and make a difference. I worked with Max Klinkenborg almost 20 years. His great-grandfather had immigrated from Germany to Homestead, a a little farm in Missouri, and is part of a a tight-knit German community of farmers. And Max describes growing up in a family of relentless, thankless, drudgery work. And he often said that his father's motto was, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing the hard way. Now, I don't know that Max's father ever actually said that, but that was the message that he got, and, and Max grew up exasperated and wounded by a demanding father, and there are lots of folks like that and maybe some in here like that. Yes, we want our children to grow up understanding the necessity of work and finding value in it, but I don't think that's the kind of memory that we want our children to have. We can exasperate in so many different ways. We put down, discourage, ridicule, shame, or neglect when we ought to be building up, encouraging, valuing, affirming, and guiding. This isn't rocket science. You could make that list, and you can add to that as we go along here, the positive things that we should be doing with our children instead of exasperating and pushing their buttons. But too often, too often, we forget that what's needed by a five-year-old is not the same as for a 15-year-old and a 25-year-old. Still, regardless of the age, we never stop being a parent. And we never depart from that goal of a a four-dimensional adult that we want our children to, to mature into. But we do have to adapt our means with the age and understanding the level of freedom that they've achieved with that aging. And Too often, we tend to mechanically copy or overcompensate for what we experienced as children under our own fathers. But good or bad our earthly father is not the standard of behavior for how we should be a father. Paul says, live a life worthy of our calling as imitators of God, especially as fathers. Now, if that's a little bit frightening, it should be. You know, several times Paul talks about us imitating God and being perfect as our father. But he also says, God's at work in you. So it's not just our own energy and our own capabilities and our own gifts that allow us to be, become God-like. It is God at work in us that molds and shapes us into the image that God intended from the very beginning. And, and that brings us to our closing passage today to, to look at the loving fathers. Luke 15, 11 through 32. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Now you know it as the parable of the prodigal son and you know it well. It's really the parable of the loving father, but you know th- this is one of Jesus' best-known parables, even by non-Christians. And the primary reason Jesus told this parable was because there were religious people around him who were muttering about the way he accepted extended exception acceptance uh, to people that they had written off and had discarded. They may have been religious people, but they totally misunderstood God as the loving father. That's what this parable is all about and what Jesus is trying to drive home with them. You see, for the sake of love, this father accepted the insults of an adult son and allowed them to make some stupid, dangerous choices. But still, the father loved them. Still, the father went to the gate every day scanning the horizon, looking for their son. And when the son finally comes home, the father celebrates and throws a party. Should have been the end of the story. wonderful story great movie but you know that's not the end of it the elder brother was filled with righteous indignation mad mad as fire about this didn't want anything to do with it was as ugly to his father as the younger son had been just different language but the father didn't write him off either the father loved him and begged him to come into the party and to join it and to be part of it. We're not told what the elder brother did. Jesus drove home the message right there. This was to those other guys out there. That don't write off people. God's having a party and wants you to be part of it. You see, Jesus not only taught the complainers about God's nature as a loving father, he also invited them to come in and be part of the party. Rembrandt's classic painting captures the whole story. Dominated is the loving father in bright light embracing the broken younger son who's come back home. And off to the side are those muttering religious people saying, yeah, I don't know about that. (laughs) And even worse in the background is the shadowy figure of the angry elder brother. There are so many points to be made from this story, but I'm just going to stick with a few that are related to today. First is, I understand that calling God Father creates problems for some. We know that God is neither male nor female, and yet we're told that male and female together are somehow created in the image of God. That, that's hard for us to put together. You know, there, there's, there's something of both maleness and femaleness in God. And we misrepresent the full nature of God when we focus exclusively on one or the other. But our language only gives us two choices. I mean, we're kind of stuck in a bind on that, and and that's something we just have to deal with and move on and know in the back of our heads, okay, God is not just male or just female. It just doesn't work that way. But a more serious problem is that we too often project our experiences onto God. And we say, okay, if God's father, and if I had a lousy relationship with my father, that must be what God's like. And I've heard with my own ears and talking with people, if that's the way God is, I don't want anything to do with God. And, and, and the, the, the big problem with that is we've got things exactly backwards. God is not modeled after my father. <laughs> My father should have been modeled after God. God's the gold standard. And my father, like your father, as wonderful as they may have been, failed in that. (laughs) Some worse than others. But none of them lived up to that expectation. But we need to remember, God is the perfect father. Nobody else is. And as much as we may love our own fathers, as wonderful as they may have been, they're not the same as God. The third thing learned from this is that Good parenting is no guarantee. This was a good loving father. And both of the sons didn't understand him. One ran off and did some stupid things. Uh, One stayed, but obviously had a lot of anger in his heart about something. We can be a good father and our kids can still go off and do some stupid, dangerous things. We can hope they come back. We can hope that the things that they've seen in us catch up with them like they did with the younger son in the pig pen. But there's no guarantee that's going to happen. In the final analysis, the choice is theirs. And so don't be a good parent because uh, you think it's going to guarantee an outcome. Be a good parent because that's what you're called to be. If you had a good father, that that is something to celebrate, and I don't want to take that away from you. Uh, At the same time, uh, if you did not have a good experience with a father, know that the one perfect father, weeps with you over the way that you were treated. You see, God is the only perfect father, uh, and everyone is a son or daughter. We may be near or we may be far. We may have done some awful things. We may have an imperfect understanding of God. We may have rocky relationships with other family members, but God loves us and rejoices when we return. And so I invite you to return God will receive you. I promise you that. But God will not only receive you, God will rejoice and throw a party and invite everybody else to be part of it. You see, God took the initiative and sent the invitation in Jesus Christ that was sealed and delivered on the cross. That's what that's all about. It's about a loving father. God loves you and wants you home regardless of how broken and crippled you may be. And God promises a party and invites all the brothers and sisters to join in. See, God is the example of the good Father making things okay in ways that we don't expect and we don't don't deserve. Amen.